The Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 19th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us up to date on Canada's response to the war in Ukraine, including the military resources being sent to help the Ukrainians in their battle against the Russian invasion. Then we speak with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in European affairs. Andrew gives us his perspective on the move by both Sweden and Finland to join NATO and what the Russian response will be to this action. How much do you know about intermittent fasting? We discuss one of the biggest current trends in dieting with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, users of the Google Pixel smartphone may find themselves in a bit of a pickle. We catch up with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, who gives us details on a glitch affecting the device, which apparently has no current fix. Well, the latest on the war in Ukraine was the focus of this week's global on global television, the West Block. With details, we are joined by the host and Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Hope you had a lovely Easter long weekend. Did you get a long weekend at least? Uh, I did. Lovely. No, I'm in Calgary because my dad is actually really sick. Uh, so uh, I was in Rocky View Hospital, but what amazing doctors and staff uh, up there who are looking after my dad. So yeah, I'm ironically uh, in the same city as you, which was not not how we planned to spend Easter. But you know what? Hey, silver lining, um, we got Easter together, which was something we weren't expecting. That is a surprise. I guess nice to be together, but all our thoughts and, and hopes that your dad has a speedy recovery. So we thank you for joining us this morning. Um, you know, as you, you started out the program uh, on the West Block this past weekend saying there were more than 50 days into the Russian invasion now and the death toll just continues to rise in what's being called the genocide now. So you started off speaking with retired Lieutenant General Rome Mia Dallaire about Russia's invasion. How does he view this war? Really interesting um, to hear from General Dallaire and, and to hear from him too with his perspective as a general because we, we often hear from Romeo Dallaire about war crimes, which we talked about as well, um, but also as someone who was a three-star general who knows how to run campaigns. Um, he says that he thinks on day one, NATO should have come across Ukraine's western border as soon as the Russians came across the east to essentially call what, what he saw as it could be Russia's bluff initially to get them to back down. But now that you know that window has closed, it's very hard to confront Russia without escalating this further. He says he thinks the West has learned nothing when it comes to confronting potential genocides. Uh, that self-interest is still really what's governing foreign policy and defense policy, rather than reacting to cries, crimes against uh, humanity and war crimes. Um, he also said, though, interestingly, he's not sure whether or not it meets the definition of genocide yet, and that's because genocide is a state-driven decision um, to try to eliminate a certain group of people. And he said he needs to see more about whether these were rogue Russian commanders on the ground or whether this was being directed by Moscow. And he says, therefore, it's really important that war crimes investigators get to some of these areas as quickly as possible because that will allow you to determine what's happening now, kind of during the course of the war, rather than years later. You know, you also had the chance, Mercedes, to speak with Defence Minister Anita Anand about Canada sending additional military support to Ukraine. Uh, How much more are we planning on sending and do we have enough to send? 
So there's about $500 million in the budget that's been set aside for this, and they're trying to figure out what to spend it on. So there's a few options. You can either choose to take it from your own stocks, or you can buy. Canada does not have um, enough to send just out of our own stocks, but they are looking at that. And Global News uh, learned from two different sources. They're looking at sending potentially some Canadian armored vehicles, like coyotes and bisons. Bisons we basically never, ever use. Uh, They were also looking at the possibility of sending our tanks um, or sending some of our labs. The challenge with any of these big armored vehicles is that some are complex to use. Uh, Lab is not. I've driven one. They're pretty straightforward uh, in that case. But some of the others are much more complex to use, and tanks in particular are really, really, really hard to maintain, um, even with expert maintainers. And it's not that the Ukrainians couldn't learn to use tanks. They don't know how to operate ours or maintain them. So some of the military have been sort of warning the government, you could send some of this equipment, but if it breaks down two days in because nobody knows how to maintain it, that's not helpful. But there is still a possibility they might look at some of that armor that the Canadian military has uh, to send that over. Now, that, of course, depletes our stocks, too, which is another potential risk against it. However, at the moment, we clearly need it less than Ukrainians do. Um, They're also looking at what they can buy, and that's where things get complicated as well, because it takes a lot of time to buy things. Um, There's some things like javelins that take down tanks that are a little bit more ready on the market, but when you start to talk about heavier, more serious military equipment, um, it can be years out before it can be produced if there's not already a stock of it. So this is sort of what the government is grappling with right now is trying to figure out what they can buy quickly. But the reality is, according to a couple of sources I've talked to who are involved pretty directly in this, um, finding things that they can get a hold of fast, uh, it's a serious challenge for them. Do uh, First of all, a quick uh, backtrack there. Did you say you drove a tank? I drove a lap. <laughs> I haven't driven a tank, but I have driven a light armored vehicle. Mercedes-Stevenson, so you've done just about everything. I love it's it. Exactly like driving an automatic car. Really? Honestly, yeah. It's. I was. I was shocked. Um, I would still get out of my way if you saw me coming in a lab. <laughs> like, who okay. knows what's going to happen? Fair but enough. Straightforward to drive. Okay. Uh, you know, just uh, continuing on that topic, though. It's, very seriously, obviously, there have been a lot of leaders hitting the ground in Ukraine. Really, you know, being seen, taking public transit, getting onto the roads, walking with the president of Ukraine. Is there any talk that the prime minister will actually go to Ukraine as well? I haven't heard any public talk about that, um, but I've I've spoken to sources um, on the Ukrainian side who say that, of course, like any world leader, he'd be very welcome there. I don't know if there's any plan for him to go. They keep those things really tight-lipped, and they usually tend to be a secret until that world leader actually, like, shows up on the ground. Um, So (laughs) I have a sneaky suspicion that if he goes, we'll find out once he's left, Mm. um, and that's when those pictures are released. But certainly it's something the Ukrainians want, because they want as many world leaders as possible to go there. It's part of um, this you know, very public campaign that they're running for support that has been quite effective by President Zelensky. Um, so I'm sure that if Prime Minister Trudeau wanted to go, they would probably welcome him for a visit. Um, of course, it's, it's getting, you know, sources I talk to say the longer you wait, the tougher it gets to go, especially with them opening up this sort of new wave in the campaign, although it appears to be much more focused uh, on Donetsk uh, and Crimea than it is on Kiev. Mercedes, we may not see the uh, Prime Minister's dress shoes on the ground in the region, but yeah, hearing that more boots are going to the region, particularly Poland, what did Defence Minister Anand say that the role will be of Canadian soldiers, uh, you know, the troops going into Poland? What are they going to be doing? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of people hold troops on the ground and think fighting, and, and that's not the case. They're not going to Ukraine. There's no consideration in Canada doing that. Um, what these 100 to 150 not clear that they actually have the whole 150 they announced yet um, troops will be doing is is going to Poland, where um, as of Friday, so these numbers will have changed, more than 2.6 million um, Ukrainian refugees have fled. And I was working in Poland for a while, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's just a huge, huge number into all the countries around. So a lot of these folks are actually Ukrainian speakers. They're from Edmonton uh, and from a couple of other places in Canada. So that's tremendously comforting, as you can imagine, for refugees to be able to be spoken to in their own language. And Canada is basically going to be providing basic medical services, um, potentially some help with trying to process and locate them. It's not clear if these planes that were sent with troops might also go back and be used to help bring some of these refugees to Canada, because Canada, of course, has pledged to take a large number of Ukrainian refugees. But at this point, it's sort of just helped for the Polish government in processing the massive number of refugees that is still coming across the border every day. Mercedes, thank you so much for joining us. We're sending good thoughts to your dad at the Rocky View Hospital, wishing him a speedy recovery, and thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Finland and Sweden plan to join NATO as soon as possible, but how will this move be received by Russia? With the latest on the war in Ukraine, we are joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Well, if Finland and Sweden join NATO, what would we expect from the Russian response? What do you expect yeah, well, we've we've gotten uh, the initial response. It's uh, it's certainly irritant. Um, so Medvedev, the former uh, president of Russia, has said that basically Russia will now, when they review their targeting, their nuclear targeting, uh, they will now include uh, Finland and Sweden if they become part of NATO. It's just a sort of routine targeting thing. Um, this is not this is background sort of noise stuff. I mean, right now we've got the major offensive in the Donbass starting today. So I think all eyes are on that. The the NATO, the, the Finnish and Swedish accessions to NATO, I think really they will start to come into more into the new side in June, around the time of the NATO summit in Madrid. So because this will take a little bit of time, although NATO has said they will fast track them, but that means like June, right? It's the summit. So for now, it's a backgrounder story. Uh, I don't think it'll change the equation much as well as well. This whole Ukrainian situation has really changed the uh, the Russian political calculus in the sense that I think they're they're giving up ideas of the larger sort of Russian sphere of influence, including all Ukraine. And this whole war now is shifted onto the Donbass. And I think the Russians are kind of pulling back their political objectives to a consolidating a buffer in eastern Ukraine and, of course, in keeping uh, Crimea. Also, politically speaking, the Russians have really hardened. They are now in their... They're really focused on their conservative Eurasian perspective. The Russia has a divide politically between the Western sort of liberal orientated Russian people uh, and then our hardline conservative people, and including the Russian Orthodox Church. And that's now these are the this is where the focus is in Russia. So I think they're kind of like giving up on the West. Yeah.
Andrew, before I want to get more into that, the Donbass region, why it's so important and, and why this is such a big target. But I just want to step back to even any discussion about nuclear or use of nuclear weaponry. Do we even think that that's a, a possibility when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Now, it is a possibility, not a likelihood, but it is a possibility. It cannot be taken off the table. And it's extremely serious. What we're talking here is weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction have only been used two times uh, in World War II, Nagasaki, Hiroshima. And never, and that was when only one country in the world had nuclear weapons or atomic weapons back then. We are in a totally different situation here with the United States, of course, and the Russians. Both have the capability to destroy the planet numerous times over under mutual assured destruction. Use of even low-yield tactical nuclear weapons, which has been speculated in the press about the Russians using it somewhere in Ukraine, it brings the matter to a, a level that we've never been at before, historically speaking. And I really, this would be, it's very difficult to speculate, but I would suggest to you that really this becomes a very serious matter that will be handled by the United States and Russia, because they are the two superpowers. And it's really, it's a dimension that we, we can't, we can't accurately discuss really let's uh, break down and go back to the donbas region and uh, why you mentioned the focus is shifting for the russians why is this region so important strategically and politically so it's the coal mining area uh it has a lot of value so ukraine is 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 uh, is a very rich country uh in terms of its geography it's a it's a breadbasket it's got it's got excellent arable land, uh, and it also has uh, uh, this this coal mining uh, this coal area uh, in the in the eastern section. The eastern section is uh, also historically the Russian section, the Russian speaking section of Ukraine. So this is where there of all the sympathies uh, of of Ukrainians toward Russians, this is where it's at, and this is where the republics the first rebellion against the Maidan revolt in 2014 took place here. Um, so. For the Russians now, that, that they realize they cannot, uh, since their first phase of the war failed, to take all of Ukraine, uh, they are now focusing on the second best option, if you will. They need a victory of some sort. So they'll take this hardcore, traditionally Russian-type area of Ukraine, and and uh, basically what they expect to do is, is uh, destroy, well, defeat the Ukrainian forces there, complete the land bridge in the south when they take Mariupol, and I think that's just a question of time. And then they can take, they can say this is victory. And on May 9th, if, they, if the timetables meet, uh, they will declare that the war has come to an end. And I've been talking to you about diplomacy before. Well, I'm not sure there's going to be much of a diplomatic solution here. I think it's just going to be a ceasefire and an armistice because both sides now are so entrenched against each other. That it's hard for me now to speculate, well, and make a deal this, they'll do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's just kind of like going to stop fighting at some point where they can't do any more. And that'll be that. Andrew, why do we describe this as a new phase of the war? Why is it being called that? Well, because the, the first phase was, in from a Russian point of view, was they had a maximalist view of Ukraine. That is a neutral, a neutral Ukraine, uh, a, a Ukraine that recognized Crimea, uh, you know, as being Russia. And there was all the sort of broad issues that they were kind of soft diplomatic objectives that they were going for assuming that they had been able to to essentially remove Zelensky or at least push Zelensky into a corner where he would negotiate favorably from a Russian perspective. And about two weeks ago, we were almost there. 
uh, when they had the meetings in Istanbul. And then, of course, that, that next weekend we had the discovery of the massacres of civilians. We had the sinking of the Russian cruiser Moskva. It changed a lot of things. And the Russians also realized they don't have the military strength to take all Ukraine in a pitched battle. They thought they could do it through a special forces operation. Failed. So now they're going to a very traditional World War II, time-proven thing, a bunch of Russian numbers against the quality Ukrainian forces, and they'll try to overwhelm them. And they'll take a limited but defined objective. And, and the Donbass is a definable objective, as well as the land bridge to Crimea. These are definable objectives. I believe they will try and take them with their numbers of forces and then, and then basically call for a ceasefire. Just before we let you go, quickly... Almost two months into it, are you surprised that we're two months into this conflict when people thought it would take days or weeks to complete the Russian mission that they came into Ukraine for? You have me on record say how surprised I am. I've been wrong all the way through. I appreciate you still talking to me. I mean, no one, maybe a few people calculated it. I didn't think there would be the war. I thought we were going to go to the diplomatic solution, as I've said on your show. Once the war started, I thought there would be a, a diplomatic pathway even to resolve that. It has gone completely outside the box, certainly of how I thought, but other analysts also have been wrong on this one. Um, so we've been tracking it. Now, there is, there is a very famous saying by Clausewitz, the philosopher of war, that while war, uh, war is about politics, but war has a grammar of its own. And this is what defines war moves things in ways that is unpredictable for anyone. Andrew, thank you so much for your time this morning. We always love your perspective. I think you're right. A lot of people having trouble getting this one right, but I don't think anyone can predict Putin, and that's the problem. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Anytime. Appreciate okay. it. Andrew Rasoulis, okay. fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. continue the discussion around one of the hottest diet trends these days it's intermittent fasting so how safe is it and is it for everyone to talk about it from the medical side of things we're joined this morning by dr ted jablonski our on-call family physician hi dr j good morning your thoughts sir on intermittent fasting well it's interesting that it's called the hottest fad it's been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years usually done in religious ceremony um, so it's really not new at all, and we've been playing around with this in many different variations for many, many decades. Um, I think for the most part, um, I don't think there's any harm in it uh, if people want to try it, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's the be-all of the end-all of having people you know, dramatically lose weight or become dramatically healthy because they're, they're doing a, a fasting uh, technique. So I think it's, we have to put it in perspective of what it can do and not do. I was shocked to hear this morning that it can help with cellular repair or something of that nature. Can you break down that aspect? Well, this comes from this uh, notion that it may have an anti-inflammatory effect. But again, without raining on the parade, um, mm-hmm. if we don't eat, uh, some foods have an inflammatory effect. So the, uh, the understanding is if you eat those inflammatory foods, that can make inflammatory conditions worse. So if I don't eat inflammatory foods, then in theory I might help. So I guess if I don't eat at all, then I'm not eating inflammatory foods. So in theory that might be the benefit there, is that I'm not provoking a system. 
Um, but there are also ways to eat healthy that you, you can actually eat and don't have to fast to get the same effect. So I'm not sure that the by not eating or having fasting that that has a, a sort of a magical power in some way. So again, I, I'm trying not to be skeptical or too cynical here, but I think that effect might be a bit overstated. Dr. J, are some fasting techniques, as you call them, maybe better than others? Like we had a texter just say, does the 16 by 8? So fasting yeah. for 16, eat for 8. So my, yeah, there's, a, and God, I'm doing a little research on my own on this. Uh, there are a multitude mm-hmm. of different variations to this, you know, where you can alternate day fasting. You can, you know, eat normally for five days, fast two days, uh, 16, 8, 12, 12. Uh, like there's a, uh, numbers of hours, numbers of days, etc. So I think that if I had one comment to make, it would be this. If, if you really want to fast and want to get healthy and lose weight, then coming off the fast, you have to eat very, very healthy. So the notion that I fast for 16 hours and then I eat for eight hours, if I eat really poorly for those eight hours because I'm so hungry from fasting 16 hours, you're going to be no better off ahead. So if I truly fast 16 hours and then eat, but eat very, very healthy in those eight hours, I truly will get less calorie and I probably can lose weight and feel healthier. So it's coming out of the fast that's the crucial period of time uh, more than probably the fast itself, if that makes sense. Maybe a good idea to talk to your family doctor before mm. you start a fasting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. intermittent yeah, fasting. Yeah, particularly if you if you have diabetes yeah. or any medical comorbidities. People with migraine headaches sometimes if they fast they aggravate their migraine headaches. Uh, certainly diabetes. There's a number of medical conditions where this could be kind of tricky and and uh, should be done in a very particular way. So yes, yeah, so always talking to a uh, a medical professional might be very helpful here. Interesting and timely topic. Thanks for your time this morning, Doctor Jablonski. You betcha. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Do you own a Google Pixel smartphone? Pixel owners are complaining about a strange new problem that is impacting their ability to use their phones. And the worst part, there's no fix. Gadget guy Mike Yanni is joining us this morning on this Tech Tuesday to talk about that, plus a new game from the makers of Pokemon. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning, good morning. You have a confession to make for us? <laughs> I do. You know what? We'll get to that in a bit. That that has to do with Pokemon Go. We'll get oh, to that in a bit. Okay. But let's let's talk about this Pixel problem because it is a pretty big problem if you own a Pixel phone. What's happening is those with well, not everybody, but a lot of people with Pixel phones are reporting that their phone is not accepting calls. It's mm-hmm. actually denying calls. It doesn't even ring. No notification. It just simply denies it. And so, yeah, so the question is, what is causing this? Uh, Reddit is being flooded with complaints from Pixel 6 owners, uh, but it looks like, according to the Reddit boards, that even people with an older, even the Pixel 2 XL, are having this problem. So the big question is, what is it? It could be an Android update, so an operating system update. Google does not know what's going on right now. So there's no fix as of this point. I'm sure they'll, they'll you know, get a grasp on it and figure it out. But as of right now, if you are losing calls or denying calls, you're not alone. Uh, it's happening to a lot of Pixel owners. I'm just frankly shocked anyone noticed because when was the last time your phone rang? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's a problem. We'll keep watching for that and an update on that. Uh, Twitter, we've been talking a lot about Twitter of late and the edit button really has gotten a lot of attention because they, they don't have anything like that. Or is it coming? This, yeah, this is a feature that's been talked about right since Twitter came out. Everyone wants an edit button on Twitter, and it looks like it's actually going to happen. Twitter has said they are working on it, but it might not be what people think it's going to be. It's going to be a little bit different. So I, 
engine, uh, code, people who you know reverse engineer code in the apps have discovered that the edit button right now looks like what's going to happen is if you edit a tweet, the original tweet is still going to remain. So that first original tweet will remain untouched, but what's going to happen is a secondary tweet will be formed, and then you'll see the history of the tweet as it changes, as edits are made. So there's no way to completely erase that the original tweet unless you delete it. Uh, it's still going to be there for people to see the changes. And some people will be fine with it, but some people are upset. They just want that simple edit button. Yeah, yeah. but now you're going to be able to see what Mike had to change in his tweet. <laughs> Understand the whole duration of that mistake. Very interesting. All right, before we let you go, we have to get your confession, and it surrounds Pokemon Go? I still play Pokemon Go. Okay, you're 17, aren't you? (laughs) I mean, I don't go to Princess Island Park anymore with, you know, know, groups of people that are running to catch a Snorlax. I don't do that anymore, but I still play every once in a while. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. And I was crazy. You were crazy, yeah. Yeah, but you know, Niantic, the company behind it, hasn't had a huge hit since Pokemon Go. It's released a Harry Potter version, uh, and it did okay, and then they shut down the servers not too long ago. Uh, they released another one called Pikmin Bloom, where you walk around and these little Pikmin creatures. Um, it was basically counting your steps throughout the day, a fun way to do it. Now they have a new game that's going to come out called Paradox. And Paradox is basically, it's like a Tamagotchi. You have these little creatures that you can raise, and they grow up. And as you meet other people in the game, it can change the way the characteristics of your little uh, Tamagotchi-like character uh, develops. Uh, And, of course, if you go on a walk with it, it can find treasures out in the open. So this is a game that's going to come out in the coming months. It's in uh, closed beta right now for a select few. But here's a big question. Can lightning strike twice Mm. for Niantic? I mean, they made so much, and they still make a lot of money on Pokemon Go. But can they have another hit like Pokemon Go? That remains to be seen. That's really fascinating. Kate, can I download it now or not yet? Not yet. Only a select few. Only if you get an invite right now. I'm not special like you, Mike. Let us know when it's out there and we can download it. Kay, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mike Yanni is the Gadget Guy. You can check him on social at Gadget underscore Guy and on Insta at Gadget Guy Mike. He's also got his own YouTube channel. Lots of great content there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.